Good evening, everybody. Nice to have a full hall with us, and nice to have a few faces that I don't recognise, and um, really great to be with you. Um, we're going to be looking um, at the third commandment, so especially for those who've not been with us in recent weeks, we've been doing a series on the Ten Commandments, and each week looking at the next uh, of the Ten Commandments, and this week we're up to the third commandment, uh, which is, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. We'll get to thinking about what that means in a moment. But first, I wonder if you heard the story, um, it was late last month, of the uh, what happened at Batley Grammar School. Uh, there was an RE teacher there who was teaching uh, an RE lesson on blasphemy and what it means to blaspheme. And he showed his class a uh, the Charlie Hebdo cartoon that depicted uh, the Prophet Muhammad. And he did it not in a not in a mocking way, not in a derisive way by all accounts. He did it with fair warning that this is what he was going to show them. He did it in order to teach them about what blasphemy is um, and what was the response of the community. Well, fury, outrage, um, violent response in many ways. In fact, so violent that the, that the school sacked the head, uh, sacked the teacher. The teacher had to go into hiding for fear of his own life. And when the headmaster wrote his apology, he couldn't even go out and speak to the crowd himself. He had to send a policeman out to do it for him. Such was the strength of the response from the Muslim community in that area. They were outraged that Muhammad would have even been depicted in this image. Uh, It didn't matter what the context was uh, or what the teacher was trying to do with that image. They just did not want Muhammad uh, painted in the picture in that way. That's the response of the uh, some, let's say. That was the response of some in the Muslim community in that area. It might get you wondering, why is it that we never see a similar response from Christians? Uh, Muslims, of course, have very strict rules about blasphemy. Uh, They will not have a depiction of Muhammad. They they will not have a depiction of Allah. And even if they say Muhammad's name, they have to follow it up with a, a blessing. Peace be upon him, they say. But what happens for the Christian? prophets and and Messiah and and God. Oh my God is a a phrase which is used to to curse God for things, uh, well, sometimes curse him, sometimes thank him for things as trivial as the flavour of your ice cream to as severe as the death of a loved one. Jesus Christ's name is used as a swear word every moment of every minute of every day. And what is the response of Christians? Well, whatever response there is, we wouldn't want it to be linked to the violence that we saw in that, the response of some of those Muslims. Uh, but it's never anywhere near as strong as the response that we saw. And it might get you wondering, why is that? Why do we respond less? Perhaps some might accuse Christians of basically being lax with God's law. God's grace has been uh, had such an effect on us that we we... We find God's law irrelevant. We're, we're ignorant of it. And even if we do know what God's law says to us, um, we don't seek to follow it as strongly as we ought to. Perhaps there is some truth in that claim. And one of the purposes that I want to achieve this evening, as we look at the third commandment, is to ask us again, are we taking God's word seriously? Are we properly submitting to God's law? But, having said that, I don't think that warrants a response the same as what we saw some of those Muslims uh, responding with. There's a big difference in the way Muslims are using their law and the way Christians are using the law that God has given us. For the Muslim, how are they saved? 
In Islam, salvation is, is basically dependent upon God's response to you on the day of judgment. He will weigh your deeds. He will try and work out whether you've been a follower, a, a servant of him, or his enemy. And the gift of salvation is not so much God himself, but some, some gift that only Allah can give. Entry into paradise. And so as you live through life, what you're going to use God's law for then, if you're taking it seriously, is a means by which to show your absolute utmost devotion to him. And whatever law he gives, you're going to, you're going to obey it as far as you can and even beyond in order to prove to Allah when the day of judgment comes that you are worthy of this gift that he can bestow. That's how it works in Islam. But how does it work in Christianity? Well, for a start, salvation is not just some reward that only God can give us. Our salvation is God himself. And we're not waiting for our salvation as though it's one day in the future when it will arrive. Salvation has begun now. We are saved. We have entered into the eternal life, even today. Because the eternal life is not characterized by the pleasures of paradise. It's characterized by knowing God, reconciliation with him. Salvation is to be called his child, to be brought into his family, and even indwelt by his own spirit. And because of that, that's going to change the way we use the law as Christians. We're not going to use it in order to try and prove ourselves to God. Instead, the law is going to be the outworking of a response of love and gratitude. The difference, if you want an illustration to put it, is you could look at the difference in the patriotic response. For example, on the one hand, a person who lives in North Korea. You can imagine, proudly patriotic, but really largely out of fear. Compare their patriotism to the patriotism of an American from the southern states of America. They, They love their country. And their patriotism is, a, is an overflowing of their heart. They just love to be from America and they will, they will tell you at any moment's chance they get. They're both patriotic, but for very different reasons. Muslims and Christians both ought to be obeying the law that God has given. But I hope to show you that we're obeying it for very different reasons. And that different reason will also, I think, affect a different response. That means we, as Christians, are not necessarily required to respond in the way that some of those Muslims did up in Batley. We're going to consider the third commandment. Um, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. First, I want to ask, what is this commandment actually saying? What is it all about? And there's two things I want to highlight. First, I want to highlight the name of the Lord. What is, what is referred to or meant by the name of the Lord? Um, well, the first thing to say is we're not just referring to the name God here. God is not the name of God. Um, God has a, has, has a specific name. If you have got your Bibles in front of you, turn to Exodus chapter 3. I was torn between reading this passage or reading the passage from uh, Exodus 33 uh, as part of the service. But uh, anyway, we had, we had Exodus 33 read and we'll refer to that in a moment. But let's have a look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. And this is the incident with Moses and the burning bush. And God is speaking to Moses out of the bush and calling Moses to the task of uh, freeing Israel from Egypt. Verse 11, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. 
And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? Well, then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you had to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to remembered from generation to generation. When we're talking about the name of God, this is the name that God has revealed himself to have. I am who I am. And it's a hugely significant name and you could, you could spend years just meditating on what this name implies. A few pointers. It implies for starters that God is, um, that God is self-existent. I am who I am. I am independent. I have not been birthed or created or made or designed. I am. And I always have been. It points to his uniqueness. In one sense, God is saying, I am, compared to the many thousands of gods that the Egyptians would have. I am, they are not. Uh, this name points to God's persistence, his unchanging nature. Uh, Moses is sent to tell them that the God of your fathers has spoken. And God says, I am. The same God that spoke to your fathers, he has not changed. His promises have not been rescinded. His purposes have not been adjusted. I am. And the name then that God gives to Moses and subsequently to Israel becomes shorthand for not just who God is, but God's whole character and especially the covenant relationship that God is about to make with Israel. And that's what's going on in verse 15 of what we read. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Israel, I'm, I'm joining this relationship with you and you are going to remember me through this name that I have given you. And so they call him the Lord. And whenever in your English Bibles, in the Old Testament, you've got Lord in capital letters, it's this specific name, I am who I am, uh, that is being referred to in those verses. The name of God is not just a, a unique identifier. You know, you've got all these Egyptian gods. You've got Horus, you've got Osiris, you've got Re. I think, I think even Seth was one of the Egyptian gods. Uh, and then Yahweh alongside them. Uh, here's just another name, just to make sure we all know which God we, it is we're talking about. No, that's not what the name of God is doing. It's doing far more than that. It's saying something about who God is and what he's like and the way and the reason that he is acting. And that fits with the way the name gets mentioned throughout the Old Testament. People call on the name of the Lord which is not just sending up prayers to God, but trusting in God's promises to them and asking God to fulfill what he has said is true about himself. Uh, we sing praise to his name. Uh, we uh, God acts in order to preserve the glory of his name. And when uh, we read the, the passage from Exodus 33, God says, I will cause my name to pass in front of you. My name is, I'm a... Gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. 
God's character is revealed to Moses. So the name is not just a unique identifier, and it means that the commandment that we're given, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord, is about much more than just, oh, there's this one word that we've got to be careful about how we use it. This is not the Harry Potter thing. You know, Voldemort in Harry Potter, nobody will say his name. He who must not be named, they're scared of using the name. Well, the third command is nothing like that. Okay, That is some some sort of magic spell to, uh, that's related to the name itself, the word. But God, when God talks about, be careful how you use my name, he's not just talking about a single word that describes him. He's talking about, be careful about how you represent me as a whole. Be careful about what it is that I'm depicted to be. Um, the way I'm referred to, it's a recognition of his whole deity, his character, and as well as his salvation promises. That's his name. Uh, there's another aspect to the commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does it mean to misuse the name? Well, at this point, a slightly more literal translation would, uh, would help clarify things. We could rephrase this. You shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God in vanity. Okay, So you can see why, um, or I hope you will be able to see why the NIV is uh, simplify that to you shall not misuse the name. Uh, but if we think about you shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God in vanity, uh, what does that mean? Well, um, somebody has got Psalm 25 and Psalm 20. Somebody's going to read a few verses for us. Uh, these, these verses also use the terms lifting up. Uh, listen in these verses to what it means to lift something up. So in those verses, he's lifting up his soul to the Lord. It's the language of worship. He's lifting up their banners in the name of the Lord. It's the language of proclamation. So when the commandment is talking about do not lift up the name of the Lord your God, it's talking about the way we worship God, and it's talking about the way we proclaim God. And he's saying don't do it in vanity. Don't do it in, a, in an empty way, in a worthless way, in a meaningless way. Don't lift up the name of God in a hypocritical way, you might say. In a way where your words and your actions are in conflict. Don't lift up the name of God in a, in a routine or heartless way. You're just going through the motions. You, you don't really uh, care what way you are lifting up this name. You're just doing it for the sake of doing it, because you always have done. Don't do it in an idolatrous way. Attaching the name and the character and the salvation promises of the one true God to some other false idol. And don't do it in a, in a mocking way, as though God can't really hear you. And if, if we've got our understanding of this uh, third command correctly, you can see now how it fits very nicely with the other, or the first two commands. The first command is basically don't worship any other gods. The second command is, don't use a physical representation of that God, of this God. And the third commandment then, we could summarize as, don't worship him insincerely. Don't worship him heartlessly. Be careful how you lift up his name and how you take his name upon yourself. I hope that's uh, illustrated what it means uh, when this commandment talks about not misusing the name of the Lord. I want to think now about how it is that we as Christians 
can break this command. And I'm not going to exhaust every way that we can uh, break the command, of course, but uh, I want to help us think more carefully about how this command applies to us. Three areas I want to draw your attention to. One is our worship of God. Somebody has got a reading from Ecclesiastes 5. Stand up in a nice loud voice so people can hear. Therefore, fear God. Therefore, stand in awe of God. Um, I hope you caught the beginning of that reading. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Don't come to offer the sacrifice of fools. What is the sacrifice of fools? The sacrifice of fools is the worship of those who do not recognize God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The sacrifice of a fool is one who makes a pretense of coming to worship God, but does not really know the God who he comes to worship. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes says, guard your steps. Make sure that when you come to worship God, you are not worshipping in the way that that fool might do it. I wonder, are we sometimes too quick to come to worship? Are we sometimes too quick to come to pray, not recognising who it is that we come to speak to, that we come to lift our praise to? It's interesting, when, when Job had everything that he owned ripped from his possession, he stayed silent for seven days. Seven whole days, he didn't say a word before he eventually began to pour out his lament to God. And yet even that pause for Job was not sufficient for him to avoid having to say at the end of the book, I despise myself, I repent in dust and ashes because I've spoken of things that I did not know, that I did not understand. Be careful when you come to the house of God. Be careful when you come to pray. Are we really trusting God when we come to pray or are we coming hastily in a way to, to basically offer our own plans to God and ask him to, to bless our decisions, to ask him to put our plans in motion? Are we really coming to seek his guidance and his care and his provision? Be careful when you come to sing. Have we thought properly about the words that we've even meditated on and, and perhaps sung quietly uh, this evening in our service? Have we thought what it meant when we said we have come to receive the food of God's holy word. The, the, the words of God in scripture are not just things to be toyed with or considered. They're like, they're like meat and bread to us. They are sustenance. They are life-giving. Did we realize that's what we were singing when we sang those words? Do we know what it is to pray, uh, to sing, test our thoughts and our attitudes? Test them. In the radiance of your purity. Do we know just how deep God's eye can see into our souls? Take care about how we gather together for worship. We gather in the name of the Lord. 
we gather here in the name of Jesus Christ. And so to honour this third command might be shown in the way, uh, in our attitude towards gathered fellowship. Do we prioritise gathering together in the name of the Lord? Are we here in a timely way? Are we here in a way which supports others in what they're coming to do? And here's one real practical example that we, I think often it's all too easy for us to come too hastily to God in this way. Think about the way we say grace before a meal. How easy is it, is it to, when the dinner's hot, when the kids are screaming, when, you, when you're starving hungry, we call it starving hungry, don't we? Just sit down, say the prayer, quick, get it over and done with, and start wolfing your dinner down. And we don't, we, we're not even really thankful, let alone recognising the God who has given us this meal we're about to enjoy. And you know, if you're a parent, you've got to be careful because what you're doing in that moment is you're, you're creating a pattern which your children see which suggests it's okay to be flippant in our prayers. It's okay to rush our approach to God and not really think carefully about the words that we're offering to him. Just one practical way uh, that you might think about being more obedient to this command in your day-to-day life. Uh, a second area, uh, first area was worship of God. A second area is our witness as a believer. Somebody's got a passage from Romans chapter 2, a couple of verses. Thanks, Brian. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because what are you doing? You brag about the law, but in your lives you break the law. Once you realise that the third command is not about the way we use a particular word, or even it's not really about the way we use words in general, it's, it's in effect our whole relationship with God, our use or entry into the name of God. Once you grasp that about the third commandment, it's easy to see how far-reaching this commandment uh, is in our lives. Romans 2 is suggesting that our whole lives are lived in a way which is lifting up the name of God. As as believers, as, as children of God, people look at our lives to know what God is like. And when we brag about the law, yet break the law, we bring dishonour on God's name. We use God's name in vanity or worthless, or in a worthless way or in emptiness. We carry or take up God's name in vain. And so rather than God being recognised as one who has power and an authority and one who should be revered, people can be led to look at our lives and see God as one who is weak and irrelevant and perhaps even subservient. We recognise our failing in our words, in our thoughts, our private conversations. We might think of those times when we're willing to say to one another and to those outside the church, oh yes, God is in control. But then the actions of our lives show that actually I'm full of anxiety, uncertain whether God really is in control. Or I get angry when I'm not in control because what I want is not for God to be in control but me to be in control. In our words, we might, for example, uh, proclaim that God will provide. And yet we've got a habit of hoarding, keeping to ourselves, being selfish with our possessions. We might say that my identity is in Christ, for example, and yet 
when it comes to the crunch, we are ashamed to own his name. We are ashamed to belong to him. We've got to be careful about how we are witnessing as believers. And, and this, is, this is going to affect all sorts of areas of our lives. It might affect your, your workplace. It will affect your family. Uh, again, parenting is, is a big issue here. How do you present Christianity to your children? It's not just been done through your words, but it's been done through the ways that you live. It's not just done at the breakfast table, doing your daily devotions with them. It's done uh, throughout the way you drive, the way you speak, the way you put them to bed, the way you spend your money, uh, the way you treat others in the church. Uh, your children are watching that and seeing that. It might be the way you drive as you leave the car park after church. Uh, people know that those Christians uh, belong to God. What is he like? Well, this is the only way they can see. A third area that this touches is, I, I want to speak about um, blasphemy. Uh, of course, the whole thing is blasphemy, really. But 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 when people speak in, in words that are blasphemous. And I just want to make the point, uh, many here will be clear, that when we do respond to situations by saying things like, oh my God, or using the name of Jesus Christ as a swear word, uh, that is a, a blasphemy and is against the... Um, third commandment. And it's not clear to all Christians that that's what's going on, especially perhaps if English is your second language and you're just using that phrase because it's something that you've picked up in your English classes or seen on TV. I just want to take a moment and, and say that this is not a helpful way for a Christian to be speaking and it's not a way that you uh, can honour the Lord. Now you might ask, why is that? Because when I say, oh my God, for example, I haven't said that actually God is not the name of God. God does have a specific name. So what's going on there? Um, why, why is it um, unhelpful to speak in that way? Well, okay, yeah, God does have a name. But when you as a believer say, oh my God, you're not speaking just there of some general principle. You do have a God. There is your God listening, watching. There is a God that you have a relationship with. And the people around you know that for the most part. And so when you, when you use that as an exclamation, you are referring to God. You are, you are calling on God in a, in a very thoughtless way, in a flippant way. And so you're not honoring God's name. And especially if you use the name of Jesus Christ as a curse word, because then all the ambiguity is lost. You are cursing Christ for the difficulties or the problems in your life. But then related to that, I want to ask a, a question that often comes up in churches, which is how should Christians respond when we see others speaking that way? And I don't mean other Christians, I mean others outside the church. Maybe you're at work, maybe you're on the football field, maybe uh, you're in the shops. You, you, you hear people um, blaspheming in this way. How should we respond? Should we be like those Muslims up in Batley who uh, grab our pickets and, and stand outside the, the school and make loud chants? Uh, and threatens, uh, threatening behaviour uh, towards the people who have blasphemed. Should Christians do that? Well, as we've said already, this third command is not about the use of some magic word. It's not that as soon as the word is mentioned, that's it, uh, you know, there's the sin. Um, it's not about proving yourself to God. And also, obeying the command is certainly not a way to defend God, as though he needed defending. So let's brush those motives out of the way at first. The third command, rather, is about you as a believer bearing the name of God, taking it up, proclaiming it, holding it high, owning it in a worthy way, in a way that brings honour to God. 
And so therefore, when a non-believer misuses the name of the Lord your God, his sin is not your sin. His sin is not you breaking the command. Okay? So it's not necessarily that for you to obey the command, you have to protect the name of the Lord, Lord God uh, when you see it used in, a, in an unworthy way. However, uh, having said that and saying you, know, you don't need to respond in every instance when you hear it in society, to know the name of the Lord, to take it up, to belong to God, is to be in relationship with him, to love him, and to value him for yourself. And so you've got to question that if you are living in a society where you constantly hear his name blasphemed and maligned and trodden on, and that never grieves you, and you never respond to any situation where it comes up, have you really grasped what it is to own the name of the Lord? And are you really honouring God's name in your own life if you can so willingly tolerate it being maligned in the lives of other people? I hope that uh, perhaps is it, well. It's perhaps a little bit woolly for some. Uh, some might want a few more rules about how we ought to respond when people uh, use the Lord's name in vain. But I hope that shows you that look, you don't necessarily need to respond in every situation. But if you've grasped what it is to own the name of the Lord, perhaps you will respond at certain times um, when the time is right, when there is an opportunity for you to genuinely bring honour back to the Lord your God, because you love Him and you know Him even if those around you don't. A few ways that we can break the command then. Uh, Before we finish, I want to just briefly uh, think about a question of how do we keep the command? When we finished last week's sermon, I was struck by a question uh, that was going through my mind. Am I pushing these commandments too far? Am I putting too much stress on them? Am I unpacking too much in them? Am I laying too many burdens on the congregation and upon consciences here? We think about the first command, you shall have no other gods. And we were taught about how our heart is just ready to manufacture gods. And we must not love anything above the way we love the Lord our God. And we think, can I, can I really do that? My heart is constantly trying to generate new idols for me to serve. And then we're thinking about the second command, and we're told we're not to create God in our own image, even if that's just a mental image. We've got to worship God in a way that is in entire conformity to the entirety of his scriptures. We can't just pick on one passage and and focus on that. We've got got to worship God in the fullness of the way he is revealed. And I wonder, can can I really accomplish that? And now today, we're told we can't use his name in vain, which in the end reflects upon the vast majority of the way I live if my actions don't line up with my testimony. How can I keep these commands? Surely they're being pushed a little bit too far. This is unrealistic to be asking all this of me. But then, actual fact, if we are thinking about the commands in that way, perhaps then, we are just starting to really get to grips with what the law is all about. You see, the law is not a to-do list for you to tick off, for you to accomplish every single one. The law is given to expose your sin. Somebody's got a few verses from Romans 5. Thanks, Dan. Sin is not taken into account where there is no law. 
Therefore the law was added so that sin might increase. The purpose of the law is to reveal our sin to us. If you in these sermons are meditating upon the commandments of God and thinking, these are just beyond me, then the law is accomplishing its purpose. It's showing you how far short of God's glory you fall. How, how deeply sin has infected your heart and your life. The whole intention of this series is not to pat us on the back, but to expose the darkness of our lives through the light of God's word. And this word is a, a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. How should we respond then when we see our failings? Well, the answer that we've tried to preach every week is we look to Jesus. You see, Jesus, well, every one of these Ten Commandments, he alone keeps perfectly. But there's a special way in which he keeps the third one. You see, the name of God is not just something that Jesus manages to honour, but the name of the Lord is something that Jesus is given. Philippians 2 verse 9. Have I given that verse to someone? Wave your hand if I... No, okay. Philippians 2 verse 9. Um, uh, let me turn to it so I don't misquote it. Uh, most of you will know it. God exalted him, that is Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name that is above every name, what is that name? Surely that's the name of God, that I am. I am who I am. It's, it's his name. And Jesus has been given that name. How can that be? Surely Jesus has always been the eternal Son of God. How is it that he is given the name? Well, remember, the name of God is not just a unique identifier. It's not that Jesus lived his life on earth and then God said, ah, yes, you can be part of the unique identifier I have attached to myself. No, the name of the Lord is attached to his character and it's attached to his covenant relationship with Israel. In other words, his salvation promises, his gospel. And when Jesus was incarnated as a man, lived his life of perfect obedience to every one of these Ten Commandments, died on our behalf, and then rose to new life, ascended to heaven, now there was no doubt about it, that God's covenant promises to Israel, God's salvation promises, God's gospel is achieved in and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is given the name then. The name that says, the name that says, I love you. The name that says, I am saving you. The name that says, you are mine. And so, as we try and keep this command, we don't keep this command in the way that the Muslims do. In order to present ourselves worthy to God, to receive some sort of gift that he might grant us in the future. Instead, we live in a, way, in, in a, a life of thankful um, gratitude toward Jesus Christ, not only for living the life of perfect obedience that we couldn't, but giving his life on the cross and being raised to new life so that we can have that promise of new life. And it's that gratitude that swells within us to motivate us to obey. We do all that we can to grow more like Jesus Christ, but not in order to prove ourselves worthy. Instead, we do it uh, as a, out of a spirit of sonship, not out of a spirit of fear, 
out of a spirit of gratitude, not out of a spirit of duty or enforced behaviour. To bear God's name in a worthy manner is an appropriate response of love and honour to our Lord. I hope that's helped you grasp uh, what this third commandment is all about.